All right, let's go ahead and start if we could. I'm going to open in prayer and we'll uh, begin our study tonight. So Father, thank you for uh, the gift of this evening and the time to be together. We're grateful uh, for the Word of God. We're grateful for uh, this church and for the friendships we have here. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us tonight through the text of the Scripture to understand our own salvation and understand your sovereign grace and your work in our lives and that we would also be motivated um, and passionate about seeing other people come to Christ, uh, including that we would pray for them as Paul prays for the lost among his own people. So we pray that you would uh, strengthen us in that regard and be with me tonight as I lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, at the end of last week, we had gotten, um, gotten to the end of, of chapter uh, 9, but there's a, still a paragraph, Romans uh, 9, 30 through 33, that we didn't touch on at all, and then we'll hopefully go on into chapter 10 tonight as well. Um, so let me pick up with the preceding passage to get a running start, and then I'll make some comments and we can just go through. I've got uh, handed out to you a series of questions, good discussion questions, I hope, and uh, hopefully we can talk together about this, uh, this passage. So beginning at Romans 9 and verse 22, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his uh, glory known unto the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah had said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom we would have been like Gomorrah. So that's um, where we're at from last week. And now tonight's text, Romans 9, 30 through 33 begins, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from god and sought to establish their own they did not submit to god's righteousness christ is the end of the law so that there might be right, uh, righteousness for everyone who believes and then in verses 5 through 13 moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by law the man who does these things will live by them But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith 
that we are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then finally at the end, verse 14 and 15, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. All right, so we are in Romans 9 through 11, that section of scripture in which Paul is addressing a significant problem in redemptive history and a problem for the gospel. What about the Jews? Why is it the Jews are almost overwhelmingly rejecting Jesus Christ as their Messiah? Uh, in the section we've studied uh, so far in Romans 9, one of his answers, this, uh, the initial answer he is, first of all, negatively, it's not because God's word has in some way failed. God hasn't failed toward the Jews. Uh, because there is a, a, an elect remnant of Jews within the larger group of the people commonly known as Israelites or the Jews. And, and so not all Israel are Israel. So being physically descended from Abraham, being a physical Jew, will not save you. Uh, he's already said this numerous times in Romans, but he's just specifically zeroing in on that. And he walks through uh, step by step those verses we've been through many, many weeks. Um, he culminates in, in uh, talking about sovereign election, vessels of mercy versus vessels of wrath, and God's purpose uh, for each, and that is a display of his glory, especially for the objects of his mercy. And then he says, even us, verse 24, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes this passage in Hosea, and this is what we talked about last time. I'll call them my people who are not my people, and I'll call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Uh, Hosea the prophet, uh, an exilic time prophet, is specifically uh, talking about how, uh, talking about in those verses, the Jews, and how by their idolatry and by their wickedness, were basically seen by God to be no different than pagans. They were outsiders. They were not his people. And they were cast off. But God in his grace and mercy would bring them back and make those Jews who had acted like pagans and were no different than any other Gentile nation, he would, by grace, treat them as his people. But Paul here in Romans 9 is widening that to include Gentiles. And so the real shocker here is many Gentiles are God's people. And many Jews are not. That's what's going on here. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Many Jews worldwide are his people. Now he's going to use a beautiful horticultural image with an olive tree, a cultivated olive tree, the work of God in history being the Jewish nation. And then branches, individual branches, either stripped off or grafted in. Um, and that's a whole image we'll get to in chapter 11. But that's what my people is all about. And so many, many Jews, biological descendants of Abraham, are not his people. And then many Gentiles are. 
And that's, that's what he's getting at. And he says, you are my people, they'll be called sons of the living God. And then he zeroes in specifically in verse 27 um, through 29 on Israel uh, with these two quotes from Isaiah. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. So that concept of remnant, that word remnant is like not all Israel are Israel. It's a, a group within the group. And only the remnant's going to be saved, Isaiah said. Um, so the Israelites being like the sand by the sea uh, or the, uh, like the number of stars in the cosmos, those are two different images given to Abraham. It says, even though you have a huge population of biological descendants from Abraham, only that remnant is going to be um, saved. And the Lord is going to execute his justice, uh, his sentence, uh, speed and finality, as this translation says. And then that earlier comment that Isaiah made, um, effectively the Jews are no different than Sodom and Gomorrah, except by God's sovereign grace. He could have wiped them all out. Their works, their sins merited it. So now in all of that, we know that he's talking about that moment in redemptive history uh, the two exiles, Assyri- Assyria came in and exiled the northern kingdom, and they were done. And then Is- Is- uh, Judah, sorry, the se- southern kingdom went on for a number of years after that, but then the Babylonians came in and exiled that, uh, them. So that's this decisive moment in Jewish history. All right? Uh, all of that is a backdrop uh, to even what we're going to cover tonight. Now let's look at verses 30 through 33. What then shall we say? Look at what's, what's happened here now. Gentiles, some Gentiles, not all Gentiles, but some Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. None of them pursued righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. None of them did. They're all just utterly wicked in their lostness. But some of these Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness have obtained it. Not will obtain it sometime in the future. They're righteous right now. It's an amazing statement. Here are these Gentiles who just in their paganism are pursuing pagan themes with a pagan mind. They are, as I speak, Paul would say, righteous in God's sight. Amazing. Uh, They have obtained a righteousness that is by faith. This should be an easy question for you all, but how did they do that? How did they get a righteousness before God? Please tell me you know the answer to this one. <laughs> right? By what? What happened to them? By faith. By faith in what? Christ. In Christ. They heard the gospel. They repented. They believed. Paul was there when it happened, or he heard about it. You know? So, yeah, I mean, the gospel has been spreading from Jerusalem through Judea to Samaria, and some Gentiles, many Gentiles, have believed in it. And they have received this gift of righteousness by faith they have obtained this righteousness that is by faith now why here's my question to you why is it so important for jews to realize that god's people includes many gentiles while many jews are not god's people why is it important for the jewish people in particular to know that just emphasizes importance of faith Mm -hmm. coming to salvation okay Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do the Jews need to know that? And what do they think about Gentiles? Yeah, well, that was kind, putting it gently. They usually had maybe harsher words. Dogs. Dogs, yeah, for example. No better than animals, you know. 
there was definitely a despising, a looking down. This is the tendency. You know, and it's not just Jew, Gentile. All over the world, people have an us-them mentality, and they tend to think of us as superior and them as inferior. But specifically in this issue, they did. The Jews thought, thought of themselves as superior. Paul gets into that whole mentality in chapter 2, as you remember. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you consider yourself superior, a light for the blind, a guide for those who are in the dark, all this kind of stuff, this is that attitude. Of, of moral superiority because they have the law. They have um, all of these advantages. So Paul wants them to be humble about their situation. That God has chosen and saved Gentiles. Now how does he contrast Jews and Gentiles in this section? Romans 9, 30 through 33. How does he compare and contrast Jews and Gentiles here? What does he say about the Gentiles? They did not pursue righteousness. I would call that a vast understatement. All right? What were they like? What were the Gentiles like before conversion, I mean? What, what was their lifestyle like? Yeah, I think if you were to read the second half of Romans 1, you'd get an idea of what they were doing. What was the, they were idolaters. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They're worshiping and serving creatures, images made like, look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Reptiles. They're worshiping reptiles? Yeah. And they're, uh, they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie on sexuality. You don't want to know what they were doing. It would not be right for me to tell you the kind of stuff that Romans did at night. And the kind of drunken, gross orgies and stuff they were doing is just repulsive and it's described very clearly in romans 1 and and you know it's that's that was what it is or you can go to ephesians 2 1 through 3 uh you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirits now at work and those who are disobedient all of us also lived among them at one time following the desires of our flesh and it's and in its mind, its thoughts, and the lifestyle. That's that was their life. It's it. That's how they were living. So that's the Gentiles. What does he say about Israel? They're pursuing the law to gain righteousness. So they were pursuing a law of righteousness. What did that look like? What did that pursuit look like? I'm not saying was it successful. We know from these verses it's not. But what did the lifestyle look like? following the commandments and all of the other millions of rules okay would you say all right the, that's negative speak of it positively what did it look like that moral moral lifestyle pursuing the outward form of the laws of moses would you say a better life better. virtuous moral all that kind of thing more pious pious praying right um all, they had all these works i mean because let's be honest the laws of moses were the laws of god and they hem them in and, and, and you know, they, they restrain them from those, those things. Now, we know that the exile happened because the people were not in any way following the laws of Moses and were utterly pagan in a lot of their respects. I understand that. But post-exile, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Jews that followed, what were they like? The ones that came back, the 40,000 that came back, were they zealous for the law? Well, I know initially they intermarried. 
But if you look at, at the heritage, the Jewish heritage, uh, the intertestamental period, there is a heavy emphasis on moralistic lifestyle, a holiness code. Um, there were a lot of Jewish communities um, that broke off and, because the, other, the rest of the Jews were too liberal in that respect and they were trying to live very holy, righteous, upright lives. And all right, so I'm couching it in that way because I think Paul would say that and he does say it in chapter 10. They're zealous for God. They have a zeal for God. Now they have a, a greater zeal than that and that is to establish their own righteousness. That's actually more important them than their zeal for God Jesus would say that all right but we'll get to that the fact is they led outwardly better looking lives and yet what does Paul say about them here remember we're comparing contrasting Gentiles who acts Israel who why what does he say about them they pursued a law of righteousness but what they have not attained it they didn't obtain it meaning what they are not righteous in God's sight. Meaning what? They are unrighteous in God's sight. I just want you to feel, that's a shocker now, right now. That's a shocker. They are unrighteous in God's sight. And if some, and things don't change, they will be condemned to hell for it. It's not okay to be unrighteous in God's sight on judgment day. That's a very bad and dangerous state to be in. And so it's, I, I want you to feel the shock of verse 30, you know, and 31. You know, just this, that's what we're saying here. The Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness, but pursuing their own lusts and their own idols and their own gross religions and all that. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are actually righteous right now in God's sight. Now, of course, they repented. I read about it in 1 Thessalonians 1. They turned away from all that. And they started living holy lives and they did all that. Well, I'm just saying, this is what we're talking about here. Israel pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why didn't they? Why didn't Israel attain the righteousness they were seeking? Because it was based on works. That's right. It was not based on, on faith, but it was based on works. As if it were by works. All right? Um, and so, how do we understand that? Well, um, I think if you want to get a sense of the mentality of it, there's a number of passages we could look at. But uh, Philippians 3, uh, 8 through 11, um, if someone could read that, I gave it to you in your handout. Um, Paul begins, as you remember in Philippians, by giving his credentials, uh, his Jewish credentials. You want to know what, what that process looks like, just read Paul. And, and Paul, was, Paul was a pretty good spiritual boaster i mean if you want to get a sample of boasting what it sounds like paul did it very very well i mean even did his own christian version of boasting when he was dealing with the super apostles like you know are they servants of christ i am more i mean he does this it's, it's paul it's like you want to know what it sounds like he's like i am an israelite of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of hebrews whoa hebrew of hebrews this is, by the way, the heritage that gave birth to Simon Peter saying, even if all fall away, I never will. I'm better than any of these guys. So there's definitely competition. Paul's the one that sat at Gamaliel's feet. He's at the best school in Jerusalem. He's, you know, there was a ladder climbing com com competition here for righteousness that was part of that culture. And Paul did it, he would say, better than anyone. A Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the best of the best. I was the cream of the crop. 
That's who I was. And I went beyond any of the people in my, I was more zealous for Judaism than any of the, my contemporaries because I went, I took it abroad and was hunting down people that claimed that Jesus was Messiah. That, that's how energetic I was. You want to know zeal? That's what it looked like. All right, someone read Philippians 3 for us, 8 through 11. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. All right, so this is Paul's converted self. He said, I turn my back on all of my credentials and consider them actually a loss. They were, they're actually hindering me because they're keeping me from Christ. Uh, he uses strong language here, garbage, rubbish, whatever. I had to get, let them go. I couldn't have them both. I couldn't have them both. I couldn't have my ego, my religious ego and all that and have Christ. Couldn't have them both. So I gave all that up so that I could have Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That righteousness alone will raise him from the dead into, into heaven. That's the only righteousness that God will accept. And that's what he's, he's talking about. So they pursued a righteousness that was not by faith, but as if it were by works. So how did that look? How do you pursue a righteousness by works? Keeping the Sabbath. Okay, keeping the Sabbath. Very good. Well, I, I think we, we like to label that as moralism, where you are just pursuing morality. You're pursuing wearing that label and that you're moral. You're, Moral behavior is your badge of uh, uh, goodness, righteousness. Yeah, I mean, but ultimately, it smacks of legalism. So, yeah. you can't define to a great extent a list of what they could do, what they ought to do, and what they couldn't do, and they were so pursuing righteousness by works is. Uh, those who were really zealous about paid real close attention sure. to the rules and sought to follow them religiously. Yeah, yeah, so they're, they're, they're doing all of this. Um, so they're pursuing it as if it were by works, and we're going to talk more about it because he circles back on it in chapter 10 to give more of a view of it. Zealous, but a zeal not based on knowledge, seeking to establish their own righteousness, so we'll get to all that, but I want to take it in the order here. The next thing Paul says is, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is that? What is this stumbling stone? I had to say, what is it? But I mean, you know, I really want to say, who is it? But, you know, it's just, it's, we'll keep it as a stone because that's what it is. What, what is the stumbling stone? Stumbling stone is Christ. How do you know that? Well, you just have to keep reading. I read the whole thing right up through 10.15, but the key would be, uh, 10, 11. Someone read that. Just jump ahead. See, so it's like you're wondering who the stumbling stone is. You know, some of it is right there in verse uh, 
uh, 33, 933, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So you're like, all right, there's a him that we're trusting in. But somebody read 1011. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Keep reading, though. The next, I'm sorry, I should have had you read the next couple of verses as well. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you go from that into the missions verses, etc. There's zero doubt that for uh, that that the Lord there is Jesus. And definitely 10.9 says that. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. So you put it all together, and then 10.11 says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, which is that earlier verse. He's just referring to that again. The hymn is definitely Jesus. In Paul's mind, no doubt about it. And it's definitely, he uses the same thing. Uh, 1 Peter 2 said, openly calls Jesus this stumbling stone. Okay. Jesus is the first one that raised this because he, who f- he said, he who falls in the stone, will be, uh, he on whom this stone falls will be crushed and he who stumbles over it will be, will be broken to pieces. So he's the one that first raised the idea of stumbling over a stumbling stone. Jesus taught the church their knowledge of the Old Testament. All right, you want to know the Old Testament? That came from Jesus, all right? So the apostles learned it first from Jesus. All right, so Jesus is the stumbling stone. How is he a stumbling stone? How does he stu- how how does he make people stumble? How, what's the nature of the stumbling? So so um, we just read John five today, mm-hmm. okay. and um, and this is when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, mm-hmm. and he proclaims himself to be equal with God, mm-hmm. and he gives them five like he he's like he's in a court of law. Mm-hmm. And he he, expl- he um, calls five witnesses, starting with God, and then uh, Mo- and, and ends with Moses. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he just tells them, if you believed, if you believed Moses, mm-hmm. when he would send, when he said he would send the prophet, mm-hmm. you would believe me. So I I thought that as I as we were reading that, I just went, this is a picture of. Jesus being a stumbling stone. For sure. So the things he said, the things he claimed. He burning against him. Right, so the things he claimed for himself caused them to stumble. What did he claim for himself? I mean, if we boil it all down, we get to the point, what did he claim? He claimed to be God. All right? You know, Jesus said, I've shown you many great works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any of these but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God, right? Or how about this one? Before Abraham was born, I am. Well, that ended the discussion. There was nothing more to talk about. (laughs) Overt claim to deity. And they're picking up stones to kill him at that moment is them stumbling over that claim. But I'm not even sure that that's the primary stumbling here. That that was definitely uh, stumbling. But they also stumbled over his evaluation of them. The reason the world hates me, he said, is that I testify against it that what it does is evil. So Jesus angered people by telling them that they were sick and needed a physician. How about how if you're a Pharisee and your full-time 
mentality all the time is to establish, as Paul is going to say in chapter 10, your own righteousness. And Jesus comes along and it says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying about the Pharisees and teachers of the law there? Keep it simple. What is he saying about them? They're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're going to hell. How do you think they heard that? Not well. They stumbled over it. And I think in context, that's what stumbling over the stumbling stone means here. That they needed to turn away from their own righteousness as completely inadequate and find an imputed righteousness in Jesus, a salvation that comes outside of themselves to them as a gift of grace that they receive only by faith. They couldn't accept that. They stumbled over it. They wanted to earn their own salvation. They wanted to establish their own righteousness. So that's more home base here, although I definitely think they stumbled over his, his identity as God. But if you think about it, if he just moved through life and just claimed to be God, claimed to be God, they might have still stoned him, but they wouldn't have been so enraged at him. It was that he said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. You need to repent. You need to believe in what I'm saying. So go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I think the, uh, the passage you referred to in First Peter mm-hmm. 2, I think, kind of is a summary in a lot of ways of that, but it says the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone. So, first of all, there was a, how did they stumble by rejecting Jesus instead of receiving him? Uh, and then it says, and it's stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Yeah. So, it, it was there, uh, they were offended by Jesus. For sure. So they, that was the essence of their stumbling. Yeah, so those two at least, those things come right to the fore. His claim to be God and his claim that they needed to repent and believe or they could not be saved. But now let's look at what Paul actually does here in verse 33. As it is written, so I was showing Wes this earlier. Um, this is just the complexity of the word of God. So here it is. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, comma, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, if they had been more precise, the editors of the NIV would have put an end quote after the word fall and opened a new quote beginning with the, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. All right? So the fact is there are two Isaiah quotes here, not just one. He's conflating or combining two Isaiah quotes. So let's look at them. And then we'll understand what Paul's doing. This is the depth of the word of God and the depth of an apostle teaching it. So the first is Isaiah 8, 12 through 15. So what's going on in Isaiah 8? The prophet Isaiah is predicting the coming of Assyria. And Assyria is going to come and destroy uh, the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom obviously is terrorized by this. They're, they're in deep terror. Because they're not a lot different than the northern kingdom. I mean, if they think about it properly, but they're, they're afraid. And the temptation for them is going to be to reach out horizontally to other allies like Pharaoh and make political alliances to rescue themselves from the Assyrians or to make a deal with Assyria directly and to deal with him through envoys and by bribing him and buying him off, which some of the kings did. And Isaiah the prophet is telling the southern kingdom and Hezekiah and the Jews, don't do it. You're not, don't be afraid of Assyria. Assyria is not the one you ought to fear. Who should you fear? God. 
God is the one bringing the Assyrians. God's in charge of this whole thing. So look what he says, Isaiah 8, 12 through 15. Can someone read that? Just Isaiah 8, 12 through 15, right off the sheet. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. Both, uh, but for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes them to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Wow. So the Lord Almighty is the issue here, not Assyria. The Lord Almighty is the one you ought to fear. He's the one you ought to dread. And he is the only sanctuary from himself. You want sanctuary from the Lord Almighty? It's the Lord Almighty and no other. But in this passage, this remarkable passage, he is either, to some degree you could say, draw a line through the, in your mind through the page, left-hand side, he's either a sanctuary or he's a stone that makes people stumble, right? And a rock that makes them fall. Or you could keep going, a trap and a snare. All of that's the same thing. That's all the negative side. The Lord Almighty will either be a stone that makes you stumble and a rock that makes you fall, slash that as a trap and a snare, or he'll be a sanctuary for you, one or the other. Jesus is the same. He's the same. We'll keep going. We'll, we'll bring it down to salvation in this, but this is a, a military invasion by the Assyrians, and, he's, and, it, and it's a learning tool for the Jewish people. They're learning from this. And God did this all the time. He used these Gentile invasions to teach them important spiritual lessons. Big time. All right, then um, a number of verses later, or chapters later, Isaiah 28. Someone read that, Isaiah 28, 15 and 16. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the grave we have made in diamond. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. Uh, for we have made a lot, we have made a lie our refuge and also our hiding place. So this is what Solomon where it says, See, I laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. But the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Alright, so the context there is not the Assyrian invasion, but the Babylonian. And he's saying there's people among you that think that they have made a covenant with death. We've, we've figured out an arrangement here to escape the Babylonian invasion. Again, it's going to be that scheming, plotting, figuring mind that makes a covenant or agreement, probably again with, you know, another uh, Gentile nation or something like that so that they can have deliverance from the Babylonians. And he calls that a lie. You see that? that? That covenant that they've made with the grave is a lie. We have a refuge. Again, there's that the word sanctuary and refuge are synonyms to me. A safe place to hide when the scourge of death sweeps by. We're going we're gonna to have a, a, a hiding place. All right? That's what they're claiming. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. So let me bring it all, like summarize Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 20, uh, 28. 
uh, these two passages that Paul puts together in Romans 9.33. The bottom line, the stumbling stone is this, being told you cannot save yourself. If you try, you will die. But if you simply trust in me, humbly admitting your weakness, need, and sin, I will save you. Right? Did that get acted out? How did Hezekiah survive the Assyrian invasion? What did he do? Did he have some military strategy? Huh? Oh, it's a great story. I love this story. Keep it short. Go ahead. It's a beautiful story. But how, do you, how did he survive? Right? Real so quick. Short. So they're being threatened by Sennacherib. Uh-huh. Right. He's mocking God mm-hmm. and, and speaking in Hebrew so they all could hear what he was saying. Amen. So Hezekiah goes to the altar in the temple and he kneels down and he takes all these threats that the king of Assyria has made to his general and he prays. Praise. And the next morning when they all woke up, there were 180,000 dead Assyrians outside the wall of the city because they were right at the gates of Jerusalem when all this happened, the, the armies were. That's great. Well done. It's a great, great summary. And uh, no, it's really, it's really good. There is no other refuge. I mean, Assyria was uh, steamrolling people. And they had no military strategy and all that. Hezekiah knew it. And he humbled himself before God and he begged. And, it, and it's a humble prayer. He doesn't have any righteousness. He had, it's a prayer. Of, it's like a sinner's prayer. It's what it is. So then, bottom line, if you think you can save yourself, you're going to die. But if you trust in me and repent of your sins, I will save you. So... Almighty God then in this passage was both a sanctuary and also a stone of stumbling for Israel. To the humble, faith-filled remnant like Hezekiah, he was a sanctuary and a savior. But to anybody who tried to prepare militarily, who didn't bother to repent but felt what we need is stronger fortresses and a bigger army, what we need to do is make a pact with Egypt to come fight for us, what we need is a new secret weapon or some surprise strategy. If you do any of that kind of stuff, If you save yourself that way, you'll be slaughtered. That would be a stumbling stone. So now let's bring it to salvation. There is an overwhelming scourge coming your way. Worse than the Assyrian invasion or the Babylonian invasion. What's your strategy for surviving it? You have to go to God and make him a sanctuary and a refuge by faith. Or you'll be destroyed. And so either God will be for you a refuge, a sanctuary, he'll be a stumbling block that will destroy you. That's what he's getting at. And Christ is that stumbling stone. He is that, um, that focus. By the way, it says, um, see I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who trusts, it says in the Hebrew, will never be dismayed. But the Septuagint says the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. The apostles quoted the Septuagint all the time and had in him. So I was like, I couldn't hunt it down. I didn't know why the Hebrew didn't have it and the Greek translation, which predates Jesus, did. So enough of that mystery? I don't know. Um, But we know that ultimately the stone is Jesus and the phrase in him was there in the Greek translation. All right, so that's predominantly, that's fundamentally, that's how we know we're talking about Jesus. Now let's talk about uh, the next part. Uh, Paul's earnest prayer for the Jews. This is very, very significant. Now here Paul brings us back to his mentality at the beginning of the whole topic. Remember, how does he start the whole thing? 9-1. 9-1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. 
I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. All right, the Jews. What does he add to it here in 10.1? Out of, out of that anguish, what does he add to it in 10.1? He wants them to be saved. He doesn't just want them to be saved. He prays for them to be saved. He does want them to be saved. Brothers, my heart's desire, that's want, and prayer to God is for their salvation. Now here, this is after the strongest chapter on individual election and reprobation in the whole Bible. Paul didn't worry about election and reprobation when it came to his prayer life. See what I'm saying? When it came to specific people. Like, you can imagine relatives. He prays for unsaved relatives. Here's, here's the way I think about it. Election is none of our business when it comes to individual people who are not yet converted and to our responsibility to pray here in 10.1 and evangelize in 14 and 15. Our role is prayer in verse 1 and evangelism slash missions in verses 14 and 15. How can they call on someone they've never heard of? We have to go tell them how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Our job is prayer for the lost and witnessing to the lost. So yes, election's true, reprobation's true. It's all true. Paul wrote it. But Paul also lived out the life of an evangelist. He urged Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. He was, that's what he did. So those are not mutually exclusive. We would never, Paul would never think, I'm not going to pray for them. I don't know if they're elect or not. That would be absurd to him. That's not our responsibility. It is a true doctrine. God's already done all that, but that doesn't that information not given to us. Our job apparently is prayer, well first caring, desire as you said, a yearning for for that, a deep yearning, and then prayer. And then in verse 14 and 15, actual witnessing. And I think that's a, it's important, don't you think? I mean, how how as we look at that, how should that influence our lives? 10-1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. How do we emulate it? Not a hard question. <laughs> Pray for lost people you know. Pray for them by, by name. Pray for them to be saved. That's what you do. And that way... Calvinists and Arminians are completely united. Same thing with evangelism too. We're right there side by side. I mean, that's why I was able to be a trustee with the IMB for nine years. I knew that most of the trustees in the room didn't agree with the way I would have taught Romans 9. Most of them didn't. I think Calvinists make up no more than 15 or 20% of the SBC. That would be generous. What do you think, Brent? At most, 20%? I don't think we're hitting 20. I don't know. But... We can partner to do prayer and evangelism and missions. We can do that. Because Paul's doing that. You see that? And I think that's, that's very significant. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites so that they may be saved. Now let's uh, zero in on what he says about them. All right? And, and by the way, let me ask you, I asked this question. How would you harmonize this clear teaching on God's absolute sovereignty of the elect and reprobate and all that and this kind of prayer life? Or I would add evangelism. Okay, okay. I, well, I think about this a lot. So okay. I've wondered about this myself. And, mm -hmm. and, the, and because my husband and I spend every morning in intercessory prayer, I, I feel, and it seems like 
so contrary. Like, well, why are you doing this? There's something not, there's something going on inside of us. It's changing us inside as we intercede for others. And what's happening is we seem to be joining the very heart of God in this. Yeah. God's own deep desire to save. And we become, we join him in that deep desire. And I don't know. Amen. I, I, I'm with you. I, you know, there's two headings on prayer. Prayer changes us and prayer changes things. The first is much easier to understand. There's a psychological impact. You care more. You're more passionate, more likely yourself to be a witness, you know, if you pray. It's a second that's deeply mysterious, you know. Like, God converts the elect in answer to our prayers. <laughs> it's like, now that's a mystery. Um, but he uses prayer the way he uses evangelism. There, there's no difference, really. They're what we would call a subordinate means. He's got an ultimate end, and he's got a means to the end. And he uses our prayers first and our actual witnessing to get the job done. And Paul was uh, a great uh, display of that. So, all right, going on, uh, what does he say about them? About the Israelites? How does he characterize them? They're very zealous for God. What does zealous mean? What is zeal? Passionate. Okay, they're passionate. Like you're, they're on fire. Yeah. <laughs> They're energetic, they're on fire, they're passionate, all right? The opposite would be lukewarm, wouldn't you think? And I wouldn't think the opposite would be hating God. That would be passionate too. Uh, no, it's not, I don't care, lukewarm. That was not the Jews he's talking about here. Was every single solitary Jew walking the face of the earth zealous for God? Is Paul claiming that? No. He knew that there were lukewarm people that really didn't care that much or more into business or other things, even in his day. But he's talking about his brother Pharisees, I would say, the people he was with, those that were in Gamaliel's school, right? Those kind of people, the people he went to Damascus with, you know, the ones that would care enough to join him in his, in his anti-Christian mission. That's what he's talking about there. Those are highly motivated people. And then the people that were angry enough at Jesus to follow him around and argue with him and contend with him, those people, or the ones that chase Paul from city to city in, in, uh, in Greece, Thessalonica, Berea, and you know, all those places, they're hunting him down. All right, those people, they're zealous. Very zealous, they're on fire. All right, so they're passionate. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? No, good thing, Tom? I think it's generally, generally a good thing, but it can be misguided. Does Paul say that their zeal is misguided? Directly, he openly says it. Their zeal is not based on knowledge. So they are ignorantly zealous. They're zealous for the wrong thing. All right, now, aside from this immediate Jew Gentile thing, are there people today like this that are utterly passionate about religion, but their zeal is not based on knowledge? Can you give examples? From the Muslim world, for example, are there any Muslims that you think would meet this, this characterization of being zealous for religion, we'll say, or, you know, for their view of God, but it's not based on knowledge? Hasidic Jews? Okay. Uh, what about uh, any people in India? Are there any zealous religionists in India that go down to the river Ganges and gash themselves until the blood flows? 
There are. If you don't know about them, I'm just telling you, they exist. There are some people very, very passionate about the Hindu religion and, and on around the world. You know? would, you, would you say that, that the prophets of Baal and Elijah's day were zealous about their religion? How committed were they to their religion, would you say, the prophets of Baal? I mean, they were making the blood flow. They're into it. Yeah. Also, the cults that have come up out of Christian yeah. traditions. Mormons. Very, very zealous. Mormons, two-year missions going all over the world. Uh, they're zealous. Jehovah's Witnesses, day to day. You know, they're they're zeal. They're they're burning with zeal. Um, do you think there are some churchians who are not unconverted church members who would fit into this ca- category? They're unconverted church members of Southern Baptist churches that would fall under this description. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. What unifies all of these people? They're all unified by one thing. If you look at this text and generally what we've been talking about tonight, what are they all zealous for really? A righteousness based on works. Their own righteousness. Mm -hmm. Establishing their own goodness as a person. There are probably atheists like this that will do all kinds of civic projects, civic-minded projects, or go marching in a march for justice that are zealous, and they're, they're, they would make, I think they're in the same category. They're establishing their own virtue, their own righteousness, their own bragging rights as, as a person, and religion is a great vehicle of it. So I think that's what's going on here. Their zeal is not based on knowledge. So just based on that phrase, what is a partial remedy? to their plight. We've agreed that zeal is a good thing, but that's got a f- here a fundamental problem. It starts with knowledge. It starts with knowledge. That's where it starts. And the gospel is knowledge. It's facts. It starts with information. It starts with truth from the word of God that they actually listen to and learn and think is true. That's where it all starts. It starts with an, a real knowledge, a genuine knowledge. A knowledge of God and of themselves. John Calvin would say. They truly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understand who God is and His Son, and they understand themselves for the first time. They see themselves properly. I think that's where the zeal without knowledge is remedied. Um, so, what didn't they know? Their zeal is not based on what what were they lacking? What knowledge were they lacking? They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who he really was. Righteousness comes from God. They didn't understand God's righteousness. They didn't understand their own sin. They didn't understand their own sin. So let's let's see right now. They didn't understand God's righteousness. So talk more about that. What does that mean that they didn't understand God's righteousness? So Jesus as God's righteousness. Here's another way to ask the question. They didn't understand how righteous God is. What are your thoughts about that? That could be part of it. They didn't understand just how righteous God is. So what, how would that fit into the problem? They could attain a righteousness that would be good enough. They, they thought this was attainable. So they thought he was lower than he really is. The standard was lower, right? So they thought he's basically, yeah, I mean, he's a great on a curve kind of God, if you know what I mean. You know, if you beat the, no, beat the mean, the 50 percentile, something like that. Um, look, at, look at how Piper describes it here. 
and they're seeking to establish their own righteousness by law keeping. So Piper puts it this way. Here we have a Judaism that says, we're born of the Israelites. We do some law keeping, truth be told. All right, we admit we don't keep it all. We don't keep it all the time. We admit we're not perfect. All right, but wherever we don't succeed, we add some sacrifice. You know, we slit an animal's throat. We do some of that. And, uh, you know, a little bit of forgiveness. Uh, we, you know, we put all that together and then we offer that to God on Judgment Day, that whole package. What is Paul saying about that? Their track record of doing the best they could, kind of trying to keep the law as much as they could. And when they didn't, occasionally they offered some sacrifices that we read about. And that's the whole thing. Here it is, God. How's that going to go for them? They're going to get condemned to hell. And I'm telling you, that there are so many different versions of that same package that, it, that people think they can offer to God on Judgment Day that's going to be good enough. Basic, I'm basically a good person. You know how many times I've heard that in evangelism? I'm, I'm basically a good person. So I'm like, can you expand on the word basically? <laughs> Talk a little more about the whole basically thing. <laughs> you didn't say, I'm a good person. You said, I'm basically a good person. You know, it's like, let's talk some more. Let's expand some of that, you know. I don't even know how to, how to have conversations with that. All right, so Piper continues. Christianity says zero contribution to your justification. None. Don't bring any of your works in here with that. None. You're not offering that at all. All right? Zero works. Christ brings total perfection to your justification. He brings God's righteousness to you and gives it as a gift. That infinitely high holiness that he will require for heaven and gives it to you as a gift. It's, and, and that's why it corresponds to the election we've been talking about earlier. Election is totally without any condition and not based on works because it happened long bef you know, before the foundation of the world. And now justification parallels election. Election's unconditional. Justification, its grounding and provision is unconditional as well. Say, no, wait a minute, you have to believe. We'll get to that. But there's no, it's not a work. Believing is not a work. There's no merit in it. And that's what we're, what we're looking at here. So fundamentally, they are seeking to establish their own righteousness um, by law-keeping. And why is that so unacceptable to God? Why does God not want that? That, that kind of hot mess that I just described. I'm basically a good person. I've kept many of the laws generally. You know, I offered some sacrifices when it wasn't quite good enough and I felt particularly guilty. Here you go. Why is it impossible for God to accept that? Why is actually that whole thing so repugnant to God, that mess? Because it actually wasn't offered to him uh, to God, okay. Uh, it was just like God was out of the picture. Yeah, they were trying to do it themselves. They weren't doing it for God. They weren't doing it through God or by God. God almost had nothing to do with it. Very good, Diana. It's true. God isn't glorified by it. It's an effort at self-glorification. Look what a good person I am. And that's you know so. I thought of this as I was writing this handout. How is, how is Christ's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector a picture of this? All right, just to bring up the language, I don't have it memorized, but it's something like this. Um, you know, um, there was a Pharisee and tax collector, both went up to pray. The Pharisee prayed about himself, which I think is a key statement. 
He prayed about himself. So that's what you were saying, Diane. Prayed about himself almost like he prayed to himself. <laughs> you know, prayed about himself. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I mean, like, whoa, what a, what a preamble. <laughs> what is he saying when he says that? I thank you that I'm not like other people or like even like this tax collector over here. He actually says that, right? I'm not like this dude over here. What is he feeling when he says that? How would you characterize his attitude? Pride. Superiority, pride. I thank you that I'm not like other people. You know, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my, you know, I give a tenth, all right? So fasting twice a week isn't required by the law. So that shows the tendency is to go above and beyond, so you think, beyond the standard. I get some extra credit here, right? So this should be more than enough for you, God. That's, this whole attitude is just ugly, all right? Meanwhile, you've got the tax collector who it says stands off at a distance, will not look up to heaven, but beats his breast and says, be merciful to me, O God, the, sin- the sinner. I'm the sinner here. And my only hope is your mercy. And Jesus says, this one went home justified. Justified. They actually use that language. Righteous. And the other one did not. Went home guilty. How would you say that whole thing kind of lines up with what Paul's been saying here? They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish what? Their own righteousness. How is that parable a picture of that? Just in his prayer or just generally, day to day? All the time. Every time he fasted, what was he thinking about? This is like, man, I've, and I've been doing this for a while now. I should be way beyond what was needed at this point. Yeah, it's just so ugly. It, it's really, really ugly. But here's the thing, and I, I, I kind of boiled legalism down some time ago, um, and that's a conception. There is no such thing ever as extra credit. Ever. It's either good works or bad works. If there are good works, they were commanded by God first, done by God's power, and only what he expected anyway. You just did your duty for a change. That's what that good work was. You can never say to God, I know this was beyond anything you asked. There is no such thing. There is no extra credit, first of all. Second of all, what do you do about your demerits, your deficiencies? What will you do? If you say, I will do good works, they were expected anyway. There's no merit in that. It's what you should have done that day. Or it wasn't even good. So you have no possibility by good works to pay for your sins. None. It's absolutely impossible. So I said a definition of soteriological legalism is thinking that you can use present or future obedience to God's law to pay for past disobedience to God's law. That's utter foolishness. Tell you what, God, from now on, I promise I will actually obey your law. Is that good enough for the times I didn't obey? Makes no sense. Like, no, that's what you should do anyway. So there is no answer. The law has no answer for two problems, two big problems, your history and your character your nature, your heart. The law has no answer for those except to condemn you. 
And so that's the thing. The perfection required by the law can only be fulfilled in Christ. And that's where we're going to get in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there actually may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And so we'll talk about this next time, but I think of the word end in three senses. All right? Christ is the... Um, I'm not going to think I'm tired at the end of the day. All right, Christ is the purpose or the purpose of the law. He's why it was given. Christ is the perfection of the law. Telos can mean perfection, and he is that. And Christ is the termination of the law, bringing it to an end. And he's all three. Isn't that amazing? That's why it's hard to know what Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes means. The word tell us is hard to figure out. I'm like, let's buy them all. We got three for the price of one deal here, right? Christ is the purpose of the law to show you you cannot save yourself. It's the tutor that brings you to Christ, so to speak. It convicts you and crushes you and tells you you need a savior. Christ is the end of the law in that sense. Christ is also the perfection of the law because he actually obeyed it perfectly. And then Christ shut the law down when he died on the cross and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. He finished it. Animal sacrifice, done. Temple, done. All of it, done. Circumcision, done. Dietary regulations, done. Ceremonial law, A to Z, done. So that's it. So we'll talk about that more next time. Any final comments? Yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. So when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, that was it? Yeah. Our guilt before God, finished. His wrath, finished. You know, um, anything, anything bad, you know, all of it finished in Christ. Amen. Death, mourning, crying, and pain, finished. Ceremonial law, finished. Uh, all right. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't that a pretty, uh, I can't help but think of the Catholic doctrine of the treasure of marriage and, uh, yeah. and saints who live actually better than the hand Oh, way better. Yeah, way better. So, oh, they put tons of, of riches in the treasury of merit. Yeah. <laughs> so, Crazy. So, what was the phrase they used? Uh, oh, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. But that's a whole, a whole other thing. Greg, Greg, would you mind closing us in prayer, brother? Thanks. Father, I thank you again for the, the clear teaching of Scripture, and thank you for the opportunity to, to sit together and consider these things and to look at the Scripture. And we pray to you that you are a holy God, and we are not. And the more clearly we see these things, the more we are driven to run to Christ. Our righteousness, and we're just we're grateful for such a, a great provision. And uh, thank you for the promise of, uh, of, of salvation in Christ. We thank you for, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Lord, that's a that's just amazing. And we thank you for it. We praise you for your greatness and your holiness. Amen.